And welcome, my friends, to the Generations Radio Broadcast. Kevin Swanson, your host with you again on this edition. Going back to the question of origins, to which we really don't have much of a question because, well, we do have an authoritative source from which we can gain knowledge concerning what happened in history. And that's the only way, by the way, that we can know for certain what happened in history. If you want certainty, you're only going to get it from an eyewitness And you've got to have a pretty reliable eyewitness when it comes to historical accounts. So, thankfully, we have God. Okay, that's authoritative. Now, evolutionists have nobody on their side when it comes to authority, but a hypothesis that has never stood up in the fossil record and couldn't possibly be replicated in the laboratory as far as any kind of a mechanism is concerned. But a couple of points, and and we've come back to this a number of times recently on this program. This will be a very exciting program because we're going to reveal... A new discovery on the side of creationism, that in just a moment. But the longer we go, the more data we collect, it seems the less confidence there is in the Darwinian gradualistic theory of evolution. That's that's what's happening. That's what I'm seeing happening all around me. Hey, it's been 150 years. Darwin would be disappointed. No question about it. He was looking for intermediate species in the fossil record. Uh Uh-uh. Ain't happening. We're looking at the evidence of the fossil record and the development of human evolution. Again and again, the data doesn't live up to the media hype. Neanderthal man. How much media hype did we get off of Neanderthal man over a period of 170 years since, what, 1830 when the first specimens were discovered? A lot of media hype. Hey, Neanderthal man was was the guy. I mean, he, he was it. This was the big deal for the tracing of human evolutionary development. But Neanderthal man turns out by all this DNA analysis, fully human, fully human. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. So much for the hype. Naledi man from South Africa. Well, 2015, I remember it showing up on just about every news source, you know, Fox News, CNN. Everybody was excited about Naledi man. What was it? 1415 to ape fossils found in some cave in South Africa. Well, that turned out to be an ape. (laughs) Doesn't fit into the evolutionary picture. It re- dated to be something like 200,000 years and doesn't fit into the human evolutionary development scheme. Same thing for Lucy and Artie and all the others. So over the centuries, subsequent research into fossil finds would always increase levels of skepticism concerning the conclusions initially drawn. That's the kind of thing that happened over, just go over the last 150 years of Naledimen, Neanderthal, Lucy, Artie, etc., Subsequent research into the fossil finds would always increase levels of skepticism concerning the conclusions drawn, and significant disagreement prevails between evolutionary paleontologists concerning the evidence itself, and that that is the record. Now, while consensus was elusive among the evolutionary scientific community, universities, and government schools still carry on that pretense of consensus and all these dogmatic assertions in the textbooks, but not so much when we get into the discussions concerning dating and the nitty-gritty of it all. Evolution has been tried and found wanting. Darwinism's old and tired, almost worn out. I don't think it will last for another hundred years. I just don't think it's got what it takes to last for another hundred years. The data is discouraging for evolutionists, and that's, that's why there's a lot of depressed evolutionists walking around these days, in case you're wondering, why all the depressed evolutionists? Well, these are some of the reasons, but now... Uh, We're going to talk about uh, the age of the earth and the age of humans living on earth. I think there have been a couple of horse sense methods for determining the age of the earth. Uh, I like tree rings, for example. Oldest trees date back to roughly the flood, 4,400 years. Human population as well. 
human population growth rate. Very interesting. Check out the results of a multi-parameter model run looking at minimum child spacing versus minimum childbearing ages using modern actuarial data in a post-flood-like scenario with three founding couples. That would have been Shem, Ham, and Jay for this. So you do the, the math on that, allowing the minimum child spacing to range from one to 10 years and the minimum childbearing age to range from 14 to 25 years in almost all scenarios where the population does not go extinct, the critical level of 0.464% increase per year was reached. And that's the rate required by the exponential model of population growth to reach 7 billion people in 4,500 years from the three founding couples. In other words, according to the studies, and these are easy studies to do. It's not really that difficult to do these studies. What is it? 200 generations, something like that. It's not very many generations you think about it. In fact, one, one point I told somebody, I could probably get all of my grandfathers in my home. You know, if, if we pull them all together, <laughs> think about it that way. I get all my grandfathers since uh, since Noah. I I get everybody into my home. We have a party. <laughs> now I've I got a seven thousand square foot home, so you know, be some elbow room. But we get everybody in the same house. People don't realize that seven billion people, forty five hundred years, with a critical level of point four six four percent increase per year. Friends, that that is easy. That's easy. It's trivial to obtain the current world population from three founding couples in four and a half millennia. Boom, done. 4,500 years, done. Evolutionists, of course, out there suggesting first humans at 200,000 years. There's an oops. <laughs> There's an oops. Evolution might argue that humans keep going extinct, but that doesn't help. The evolution of the species is forced to start over again and over and over again. So that doesn't really help them that much. But now we have the human DNA. And uh, we have a lot to learn from that human DNA. This is what Ken Ham is calling the Rosetta Stone of human history. And may I say another death knell to the myth of human evolution? These discoveries, very exciting, my friends, very exciting. Dr. Nathaniel Jensen has done these studies. He's got a new book out called Traced, Human DNA's Big Surprise. I think it's Master's books that put this out. Master's does a lot of good stuff. And Dr. Nathaniel Jensen has also done another book called Replacing Darwin, The New Origin of the Species. I have that in my library as well. Recommend these books to you, friends. Replacing Darwin and Traced, Human DNA's Big Surprise. Uh, he is a molecular biologist, the PhD in cell and developmental biology from Harvard, and works for Answers in Genesis. Now he joins me on the Generations broadcast. Dr. Nathaniel Jensen, it's good to have you with us today on Generations. It's good to be here. Thank you so much, Kevin. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for your patience while I was trying to get everybody up to speed as to where we are now. Uh, but uh, let's talk about some of your work. You have jumped in headfirst into all of this research concerning the human DNA. This is a massive breakout of interesting information on the history of mankind, isn't it? Yes. And I like to think about the significance of this in a historical context, one I kind of took for granted growing up, but just to go back and look at some of the quotes from evolutionists over the years, they've they've pounded the drum for four decades saying it's not good enough to give us evidence against evolution. You, you can prove evolution's impossible. We're not going to change our minds. What they've demanded is give us something better. Give us a scientific model that does better than what we do. And this is essentially what this book delivers. Now, my colleagues in geology and astronomy have, have delivered as well, but I feel like this is a perhaps one of the final planks then to bring all these fields together and say, here's something superior, here's what you've demanding. Now creationists are taking the lead in this field of human history. Okay, you've got the mitochondrial DNA, and then we're going to get into the Y chromosome. And both of these are timekeepers of sorts, right? Yes. 
Okay, and the mitochondrial DNA is is a good timekeeper, and it has given us something. And you've written on that already. Yes, and the the mitochondrial DNA was touched on a little bit more in my earlier book from 2017, Replacing Darwin. That's right. There you have, as best we can tell, female inherited DNA. Both males and females have it, but for whatever reason, when sperm meets egg, the mitochondrial and the sperm are left outside the egg, and so it's effectively then only passed on through mom. And because we live in a fallen world, the mitochondrial DNA is not copied perfectly. There's mistakes that occur every so often on average, about every five to ten generations. And so these mistakes accumulate with time. You can compare my mitochondrial DNA to yours, count the number of differences, and then in a sense dial the clock back and say how many generations ago, given the number of differences, was it that we last shared a common maternal ancestor? And the same thing you can do with the human Y chromosome. And you think this is actually better. This is a better molecular clock, don't you? The statistics of the Y chromosome are better. So in this case, the biology is is almost mirrored. It's, But in this case, it's not that males and females both have it. Only males have the Y chromosome. So you okay. know, let's be controversial. There's only two genders. Males are XY, females right. are XX. There we right. go. Right, right. And when males pass it on, when the sperm stem cells copy this Y chromosome, they again do so imperfectly. It is essentially needles in a haystack. There's about 10 million DNA letters that we can analyze reliably on the Y chromosome, and of those 10 million, about three change every generation. So it's not much, but that is enough to mark off the passage of time. Again, I can compare my Y chromosome to yours. You count the number of differences between us, divide by three, and then you have to divide by two for another technical reason. And then you can say, this is how many generations ago you and I last shared a common male ancestor. And we can do the same thing with anybody in the world. Like, I've got a friend from Hong Kong named Ming, and uh, so if we take his Y chromosome mine and uh, compare them, we're going to find there's some point at which we meet, and that might be right around the time of Noah or Japheth. Exactly, yes. Okay, wow. That's significant. That's really significant. Now, how accurate is this, do you think? And I, so here's another reason why I'd say that the Y chromosome is superior. I, I forgot to mention here. So part of the challenge, mitochondrial DNA versus Y chromosome, for whatever reason, there's a lot of statistical noise in the mitochondrial DNA. So okay. you could compare yours to mine, and uh, we might say, okay, AD 500 is a good guess as to when we last shared a common maternal ancestor. But the the uncertainty would be, statistical uncertainty would be plus or minus a thousand years. So you know, AD 500, but it might have been the time of the ancient Greeks, or it could have been the Middle Ages. That's not okay. terribly useful to right, try to right. narrow down our our connected family trees. Whereas with the Y chromosome, we might say, okay, you and I have a common ancestor, AD 500, plus or minus maybe 100 years. Now, ah, that gives you something pretty okay. precise. We can say, okay, right around the time of the fall of the Roman Empire. So, my line might be connected to the Huns, or yours might be connected to the Romans. You can begin to line up the history in the Y chromosome with known recorded history and begin to see the history of peoples pop out. And what I want to add to this is, because you can be this precise, you now can begin to do things like look for the Y chromosome echo of Genesis chapter 10, which is one of the most explosive things that this new book, Traced Human DNA, DNA's Big Surprise, tries to show. When you look at the global family tree of humanity based on male inherited DNA, the Y chromosome, and then you look at the Male genealogy in Genesis 10, there's a there's a there's a point for point mirror image of it. It's one of the most profound confirmations of biblical history that we have anywhere. Hmm. Talk about that. You're talking about Babel, and uh, there's a dispersion from Babel, a significant dispersion from Babel. 
Isn't that correct? And that's Nimrod. That's, uh, I'm going to say, about 200 years after the flood. Is that right? Yeah, roughly, if we, if we put it in the days of Peleg, somewhere, I think, between 100 to 400 years, which is his lifespan after the flood. Okay. And so what happened? Where did everybody go? Did, did people wind up in Ireland pretty quick after Babel? Yes. Now, I've, I've grown up with the idea that, uh, I guess I've, I've implicitly shortchanged my biblical anthropology, thinking there's, there's creation, fall, flood, Babel, and then, then people kind of migrate and stay where they are for the next 4,000 years. I've had to go back and even realize Scripture doesn't teach this. One of the favorite examples, a little hint, I mean, you can look at the history of Israel and see that, that they've had, uh, even 500 years before the time of Christ, all sorts of intermingling. They go into Egypt sure. with 12 boys and um, come out with a mixed multitude. They go into the promised land. They don't slaughter their enemies as God commands them to. And Judges 3, I think it says, they, they give their sons to the Canaanites, and the Canaanites give... Uh, Anyway, there's mixing and matching of sons and daughters between sure. them and, and the people there. The tribe of Benjamin's almost annihilated by the end of Judges. You've, of course, got the ten northern tribes of Israel eventually, during the time of the monarchy, hauled off, conquered by Assyria, and resettled. And it doesn't take too much longer before the southern kingdom of Judah gets hauled off by Babylon and gets resettled, and some escape to Egypt. And so, we're still centuries before the time of Christ, and Israel has been intermingled, conquered, moved around repeatedly, how much more so would that happen in the rest of the globe? And so, what we found then with DNA is the history of humanity gets very messy very quickly, but there's enough echoes there if you have the biblical timescale and the right biblical orientation to this tree based on Genesis 10. It all pops out. Hmm. Now, can you study the DNA of dead people? The mainstream community would say yes. In fact, they've put a loud exclamation point on this with the awarding of the Nobel Prize this year, Savante Pabo, with his work on the Neanderthal DNA and ancient DNA in general. Mm -hmm. I would argue that we have, and I've published on this, we, we have, I've done research on this, I should say, and published experiments on this, we have independent evidence showing that the existing sequences are unreliable. There's something there, but what it represents and whether or not it can actually give us historically reliable information, I think is an open question. What they've said is, for example, the, the Neanderthal DNA sequence doesn't make sense of history that we know. You can incorporate it into the global tree and say, okay, and say, okay does, does, a, does a family tree based on DNA from living and dead people make sense? Or, or does, the, does a family tree based on just living people make better sense of history? And the answer seems to be the latter. Again, mm, okay. I, don't, I don't know necessarily the reasons why, but when I've done my analysis just with DNA from living people, the history that we know, migrations, Mongol conquests, and so on, all that pops into place, and, and we can see all that history very clearly, and it just gets scrambled and messed up when we, when we bring in the fossil stuff. So, I would argue here we have independent scientific evidence, not evidence dependent upon the Earth timescale, no independent evidence that I go into my published papers saying there's something weird going on, don't quite know what it is, and the flip side being we get tremendous success when we leave it out. So, I'd love to have that information, I'd love to be able to work with that DNA, but it just doesn't work well. And so, I've left it out, and then I've, I've seen the, the pieces of history fall into place very nicely. What are some of the other migrations we know about in history that seem to be confirmed by this DNA evidence? I'm I'm of European descent, so maybe this one is nearest and dearest to my heart. I was shocked to find out that the majority of European families, of European men, 
because we're looking at the Y chromosome, male inherited DNA. Okay. The majority of Europeans, East and West, trace their ancestry not to the ancient Romans or the ancient Greeks, but to Central Asians. And it's okay. known from history that okay. there were a group of Central Asians who migrated in during the Middle Ages. Well, the Slavs, I mean, I, I get this, the Slavs, you know, came came over into, uh, migrated into Germany, eventually made it up into uh, England. I think I, I think that's pretty clear, isn't it, in history, that there was some migration from Eastern Europe into, all the way up into England. Yes, what I'm thinking of specifically here is, it looks like these migrants came from what are now the, the Stans, the former Soviet republics of oh, Kazakhstan, okay. Kyrgyzstan. Okay. Mm-hmm. So people who likely had a more East Asian appearance and migrate. So, so it's known that there were Turkic peoples who migrated into Europe from there in the Middle Ages. And the, the, the modern Hungarians, of course, would also say that the, the Magyars came from the Ural Mountain area somewhere or, or close to, again, what are the modern Stans, Uzbekistan and, and Tajikistan and such. That's where we see a, a fairly clear genetic signature. And for whatever reason, it appears that these people, once they arrived in Europe, simply reproduced faster. And I think something analogous would be what's going on right now with all the migration from the Middle East. You've got primarily Muslim families coming in. Muslim families tend to be large. The indigenous Europeans tend to be secular. They, have, they don't get married. They tend not to have many kids. And even secular demographers are talking about how Europe could become dominantly Middle Eastern descent, and there's been nothing political that's occurred. It's simply migration and then faster reproductive rates. And that seems to be what happened during the Middle Ages as well. I've had my Y chromosome tested, and I I traced to one of these Central Asian lineages, as to to most Hmm. Europeans. And I'm, I'm wondering, given the timing of it, it's right around, it's right after the Black Death, which it's still debated how many people died in Europe in the Black Death. Some say 30%. I've, I've recently heard someone say up to 50%. So if you, if you whack the indigenous European population, you might then sow the seeds for someone to come in to have lots of large families, lots of kids, lots of sons, and then they demographically take over. Let's talk about the Chinese, the Japanese, and the Native Americans. How does that work out in history? The Native American story is one of the most shocking and explosive ones, but also one of the most exciting. There's just so much we could say about it, so let me just tick off some of the highlights. Genetically, the dominant lineage among Native Americans today, actually there's, there's a sad element to this too, so let me, let me just tell the story in a sense backwards. Today, if you look at the Y chromosome lineages among Latin Americans, 80% of them are not Native. Right. They're either clearly European in origin Spanish, or clearly African. Spanish, Portuguese, yeah. African. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Sure. Exactly. And there's, there's sad and, and ugly and, and sinful <laughs> background to some of that. I, I mean, my coworker who, who's head of AIG Latin America, he's Kentuckian, but he married like, you know, so AIG is in Kentucky here. He's, he grew up here, but he married an Aztec lady. They now live in Mexico and, and run AIG Latin America. I was talking with him about this, and he said, well, you know, the, the typical Latin American soap opera is that the Hacienda owner, on the night of one of his native workers' weddings, gets the lady for the evening, and then he passes him off, wow. passes the lady off to, to her husband. Terrible. That sort of sick practice, mm-hmm. sadly, is not uncommon. And, of course, there are many other things, you know, rape, pillage, so forth, that's happened after European arrival, and you see the genetic echo of that. Of the 20%, then, when, when I say that the remaining 20% have native heritage, there is one lineage that dominates, and that lineage, when you trace it back in time, connects to Central Asia, 
about 300 to 600 AD. In other words, hmm. it looks like, if we then tell the story forward, there was a group of Central Asians in the 300 to 600s AD that crossed the Bering Strait and then migrated rapidly up and down the Americas. Now, stop there for a moment and say, number one, this is shocking. This is completely in conflict with what this story has been for a long time. But there was one settling, and of course, the mainstream science, scientists would say 15,000 years ago. I'm saying there was a more recent settling, and I should say, I should clarify here, there's been multiple settlings. We have archaeology for people in the Americas going back to the earliest stages. We have a cradle of civilization in the Americas, the Olmecs, perhaps 1500 BC. What I'm saying is the dominant native lineage today came across in the last two millennia Interesting. and apparently replaced whoever was here first. So, let's make it even more politically incorrect, right? Two genders, and I'm saying the Native Americans were not the first Americans. Mm. There were others who were here first, right. they, they, and they apparently got wiped out or, or uh, demographically outcompeted. I don't know which. We're still searching for this original lineage. And, and so, a few more highlights then. The time that they come over is exactly the time period that modern historians highlight in Central Asia as a time of great upheaval. So the Huns and over the Huns come from Central Asia, overthrow the Roman Empire. The Shanbai come and are and, and invade China after the fall of the Han Dynasty. This is the the, the time period known as the Volkerwanderung or the, the great wandering of peoples. So is it any surprise that you have another group of Central Asians crosses the Bering Strait and probably plays a role in the downfall of the American classic era civilization, the Mayan civilization, which collapses around the 700s to 900s AD, it it firmly anchors Native American history, or what's been called prehistory, in the history we'll all all learn in school. Now, the the biggest highlight for me is the Native Americans themselves talked about this. We've got Aztec accounts, we've got Incan accounts, we've got the Delaware accounts, all three of them basically trace their history back to that period of time. So, I'm, I'm shocked that we would have well i shouldn't be shocked it's exciting to me that this research not only confirms what the natives themselves have said but in a sense gives their history back to them the mainstream mm-hmm. community has dismissed these accounts as mythological in one case one guy even wrote his phd thesis saying it was a forgery now we're saying no no your ancestors were not dumb they weren't idiots who just invented stuff for the for, for fun they they were intelligent people who recorded what happened they mm-hmm. preserved it to this day and genetics confirms it so Wow, I'm getting all excited, but that's, that, that that's to me, great. Wow, okay, yeah, has these it, has these ethical implications in it. It returns value and dignity to these people that's been taken away from them. So much more insight into human history through this genetic tracing. Talk to me about Shem Ham and Japheth. Is it possible to identify uh, where the Chinese, the Japanese, the Native Americans came from? Shem Ham Japheth, or is it sort of a mix around the world? Any male who takes a Y chromosome test can trace his line back to one of the sons of Noah. And I, I try to put some of the tools in the book, Traced Human DNA's Big Surprise, but some of these tests give you, uh, there's just a diversity of ways they report the results. So anyone who has wants to, wants to get some help in this or wants to participate in future research, I've set up a portal for this. So if you go to answersingenesis.org, which is our homepage, and then do slash go, G-O, slash traced, T-R-A-C-E-D, the title of the book, That'll take you to a page. If you scroll down, you can enter your name, email, and it will straight to my inbox. And we've had probably seven, 800 people reply this way. And I can tell people, you got this result. Send me your result. I can tell you exactly which son of Noah you come from. And yes, if you have multiple men take a test, so I've taken my Y chromosome test. My mother's brother has taken a Y chromosome test. 
We've done my wife's side, my father-in-law, my mother-in-law's brother. We've looked at the Facebook page for my father-in-law's mother's side. And you can, and it, and it looks like most people probably go back to at least two sons of Noah, if not all three. There's been so much messiness and migration and intermingling throughout human history. Mm-hmm. All of us likely have genetic input from all three boys of Noah. And that would include Chinese, Japanese, some of the more distinctive cultures in the world. Yes. And mm, to see how this has played out. We, so, I mentioned earlier, we have this mirror image of Genesis 10 in this Y chromosome based tree. And then to see how it's played out, the hard and fast rules that you, that you might think about don't necessarily play out. Did the descendants of Ham go to Africa? Yes. Did they also become the Melanesians of the Pacific? No. Those came from one of the sons of Jokten, descendant of Shem. And you, and you can see that level of precision in this Y chromosome tree, the Chinese as well, and Siberians, you can see the, the, the dominant lines there go back to this, the, the, the Semitic side of the tree through Jokten and Jokten's sons. All that detail emerges from this recent research, and we still have 99% of the globe left to sample. So, it's remarkable we've made this much progress with this this just initial scratching the surface of the data. Nathaniel, what are the detractors saying? Well, what are the evolutionists saying at this point, after you've drawn some of these conclusions? It's remarkable to me the tactic that they've chosen, because if you think about it, here we've listened to what the evolutionists have said for 40 years, give us something better. Make, make a prediction that we can take into the lab and potentially disprove. That's what I've done. I did that in Replacing Darwin. That's, that's really the point of the title of the book, Replacing Darwin instead of Rebutting Darwin or Rejecting Darwin. It's We've come up with predictions. We think they're better. Now, go out and test them. In a sense, we give the evolutionists rope by which to hang the creation model. In a sense, we're, we're inviting, them to, inviting them to come and disprove what we're saying. So, you would think after 40 years of them demanding that we do this, once creationists finally deliver, they would be beside themselves to go into the lab, to go into the field and do some experiments and test this. And instead, they've done the exact opposite. So, I've got about three major responses to my book in the sense of it's, it's PhDs, biologists, professors, here in the eastern half of the United States, who've, who've publicly come out and said Jensen is wrong. But the reasons they've given are, I mean, there's, there's silly ones where they just simply misrepresent the work or don't bother to read what I've said. But that aside, one of the main arguments against me is Jensen's using the wrong methods. Now, why do they say I've used the wrong methods? Because they've done an experiment? Because they've, no, because the textbook says otherwise. And I, and I thought to myself, whoa, 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 hold on here. You've accused us of not only being in conflict with science, they've said, and you can look this up, they've said we, that, that creationists are opposed to science itself because we insist on certainty, and science is built on questioning things, and in a sense, being rebellious. Just because someone says so, who cares? We're going to test it. We question everything. And now when it comes time to question their own ideas, to question what the textbook says, Apparently, there's a holy book called the Evolutionary Textbook, and you can't question it. And if you disagree with it, you must be wrong. And I've I, my my jaw has dropped thinking that's the direction you went. You're going to embody what you've called religion for 40 years to oppose creation science. This is this just this is the hmm. the final nail and and the complete role reversal in an unforced error, but one for which I just say thank you. This this clarifies where we're at. It shows that now creationists are the one insisting on science, insisting on doing experiments, and the evolutionists have unashamedly said, we're doing religion. Okay, that's the, that's the situation they want. Fine. It's great to see it now in print 
recorded for us, and we can we can go from there. Friends, a major breakthrough in creation science and uh, and genetics and human history. Interesting discoveries, important discoveries, and uh, Ken Ham calls it the Rosetta Stone for human history. Uh, my guest today, Dr. Nathaniel Jensen, he's uh, written the book, Traced Human DNA's Big Surprise. Be sure you get yourself a copy. This, this one's a book that's going to be around for a while, and uh, we're going to be interacting with it uh, in the foreseeable future, and of course, just opening up the door to even more research and more conclusions to draw. So very interesting. Good stuff today. Dr. Nathaniel Jensen has been my guest on this edition of the program. Nathaniel, thank you. I appreciate the time you've taken. and Let's stay in touch. Thank you so much, Kevin. And you have been listening to the Generations Radio Broadcast. If you'd like to interact with the radio program, email me directly at host kevinswanson.com. This is Kevin Swanson inviting you back again next time as we continue to lay down a vision for the next generation.